This is Andy Purrawal for Boxing Social in association with Betfred. It's just gone 12 at night. <laughs> um, I'm delighted to be joined by Don Charles for the third time in two days. Don, uh, from not being on the channel at all a matter of 24 hours ago, you're going to be on it three times in a matter of probably, I imagine, probably 72 hours or something. Yeah, you guys are spoiling me, you know, talking about all the, you wait for a bus, none comes, suddenly all the buses come at once. This is a typical example of that. Don, we're making use of the time that we've got together until obviously um, everybody leaves a bubble in the morning now. Um, we spoke about Florian earlier, so we don't need to uh, go back over that ground. The point of this interview was kind of get more of a, an insight into you yourself, Don. We had a brilliant chat off camera of our first interview, um, just about kind of life in general, what it was like for you growing up, what it was like for me. And it just kind of gave me an idea, and I'd love to have had this interview with you to kind of reflect on your upbringing, your route into boxing and how you found kind of the world change and what have you. So, Don, just kind of take me back to your childhood uh, and wow. what do you remember? Are you sure? Because we're going to be here for a long time. But no, I'll, I'll give you the outlines. I've told this story so many times. I'll give you the, uh, taking into consideration the time, you know, um, but you quite rightly said we had a chat yesterday and, uh, you know, I'm I'm older than your father, right? I'm older than your biological father. Um, so uh, we're similar sort of age. So the experiences your father would have experienced, um, I, I too would have experienced that. So a lot of the stories I was telling you, you said that your dad uh, was that of the same, uh, from the same generation, basically. Um, so yeah, I'm African born, I'm from Nigeria. Um, although I say I'm Nigerian, um, my country actually is called uh, Biafra. And you won't be familiar with it because it's a, uh, uh, we once upon a time we were called Biafrans, and there was a, a three-year conflict within my country, and uh, Nigeria engulfed my country, my little country called Biafra, B-I-A-F-R-A. It's in the eastern region of uh, West Africa of, of Nigeria. Um, so. Like I said, Nigeria engulfed our tiny country during the conflict, and from 1969 to uh, 19, sorry, my apologies, my, 1966, the war started, and it finished in 69, 69 early 70, 1970. Um, yeah, shortly after the war, my father was a government, a bank worker, the African bank. They posted him to England to continue to work. And a couple of years later, he was able to bring his family over, and that's when we came over to join my father and the rest of the family, my brothers and sisters. And um, I schooled here in England. I grew up in England. I was actually 14 years old when I first came to England. And uh, it coincided, my coming to England coincided with the, uh, the epic uh, historical Rumble in the Jungle, Muhammad Ali and, and jo, uh, George Foreman uh, in October 1974. Um, like I said, coincidentally, that my father, being an uh, absolute fanatical boxing fan, um, he you know he got me into. In, when I say he got me into, you tend to do what your father, the interest your father has. You know, you as a young person, you gravitate towards that. So we were able to watch the fight here in England um, on television, and. Uh, 
as soon as I saw that fight and I saw the character of Muhammad Ali, I wanted to become him, you know. I was so inspired by, by Muhammad Ali, what he stood for, in, how he fought inside the ring and how, what he stood for outside the ring. Um, I, like a young person, I was influenced by, I was really, uh, yeah, I was really, uh, uh, wanted to be him, you know. So, yeah, that's basically my introduction to boxing and little did I know that that uh, effect it had on me would, um, uh, would affect me forever in the sense that I ended up becoming a person involved in boxing. So, um, yeah, so in terms of uh, after watching the fight, uh, Muhammad Ali won, obviously. And um, over the years growing up, I wanted, because being an African, uh, the parents, uh, our parents, all they're interested is in books, 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 and books. Right, um, nothing else will do. I'm the first of five children, firstborn, and in my tradition, in my culture, the firstborn has to set, set examples. And it, it was me that I was supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer um, in my parents' eyes. Um, they worked so hard, my mother and my father, to put, put food on the table, a roof over our head, and also invested a lot in their children in terms of paying for uh, education. Um, and being the firstborn, like I said, I'm the one who was being primed to be the doctor or the lawyer of the family. And I saw all the, all the hardship my parents were going through. Although my father was in a very good privileged uh, job as a bank worker, a manager, a bank manager, um, I didn't like the fact that they had to like, spread all their income into paying, especially England back in the 70s. England is difficult now. But in the 70s, it was very, very difficult. You know, and when I look back at it, they were like in their mid-30s, and they had five children to raise, you know? And uh, so um, my father got posted back to Nigeria to, to continue to his work, and I stayed behind. I elected, chose to, to stay behind in England to continue my education, which my parents was originally against, because I was too young when they left England. I was like 16 years old, 16 and a half years old. And they said, no, no, you're too young to stay. But I, I insisted. And then they, they paid for me to stay. And in which I was meant to return back to Nigeria after I finished studying. But I didn't. I stayed. I'm still here. And um, during the time uh, of staying here, going to college, furthering my education, I've always had that boxing thing in me. You know, um, I wanted to... Uh, participate, I wanted to, to, to compete in boxing, not as a professional boxer, just wanted to do it, you know. Um, so I found a local club where I was living at the time, the All Stars Club, which is in Harrow Road, you know, and in West London. And um, yeah, went in there and they thought I could box because I used to imitate Muhammad Ali, you know. Um, I used to f uh, practice his footwork. I could already skip before I went to a boxing gym. So I was very convinced. And if you came in there and I was skipping amongst the box, you think, oh, he's a boxer. Me and my brothers and sisters, we used to practice in the garden, trying to skip like Muhammad Ali. Yeah, so I learned to skip before I could, I could box. Um, also, I, I, I dabbled a little bit in, um, in dancing. And I'm a trained jar, uh, contemporary jazz. Um, so I could dance before I could box. So when I eventually found my way to the boxing gym in Harrow Road, I had the footwork because of the dancing thing helped me a lot. I could skip already. When I shadow boxed, I 
mimicked Muhammad Ali. So the coaches there thought I was, you know, a boxer. And uh, till the day they put, put me in to spar, I got my ass kicked. And that's when they realized um, that, okay, you move well, but you haven't actually been taught how to box. And they took me on and showed me the fundamentals. And the rest is history. I went on, I changed areas. I was living in West London at the time. I moved to South London and I always found a local. I was, the first thing I'd do when I moved, moved into an area back then, I was still at college. I would go and find that the nearest boxing club. So I was living in Streatham at the time. No, my, my apologies, I was living in Dulwich. And I, the, the nearest gym was in a place called Herne Hill in South London. And there's Brixton ABC, it was called the club I boxed for, the amateur club I boxed for. And the people that boxed for that club, who you would know of today, Spencer Fearing, he boxed for my club. He was my junior. Spencer's like 10, 11 years younger than me. He boxed for that club. Danny Williams, who went on to beat the great Mike Tyson, he also boxed uh, for that club. I was the senior, the super heavyweight that represented that club. It was only a tiny club. They had a lot of, a lot of up and coming and people who went on to do, do things in boxing. Um, so I didn't fulfill my, in fact, no, I can't say I didn't fulfill my ambition. I never at any time during doing boxing uh, wanted to be a professional boxer because the, the background I had was of education, 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 business, business, business. So my head was to basically, I did it as a hobby because I loved it. I wanted to do it, not because I wanted to make a living out of it, you know. So um, I did the ABAs. I got to London's. I was beaten by a chap called Harry Senior. Um, who went on to win the Commonwealth title. Um, so I wasn't bad at all. I was a good boxer, you know. Um, but like I said, it was not meant to be my living, you know. Um, looking back now, could I have done it for probably, yeah. Because all the people that I used to train with, I, like, they were my juniors, like people like Spencer went on turned professional. He did very well. Danny Williams turned professional. He, he beat the great Mike Tyson and he, he, did, uh, he carved a really good career out, out of boxing. So I'm really proud of those two guys anyway. Um, I'm still in touch with them, obviously. Um, so when it was only like uh, I stopped boxing at the age of 29, I had my last fight at the age of 29, 28, 29. Uh, it was like 10 years after I finished boxing, my son was born, um, George, who is also is now a professional boxer. It's only then did I realize, hang on a sec, I could have actually done this for a living. You know, um, so I thought, okay, I really miss boxing, you know. I really, 10 years after I'd retired, I, I really missed it. I thought, I, I want to play a role in boxing. What, what can I do and, uh, to do with boxing? I thought, let me try my hand at coaching. And I asked a guy who used to coach at, uh, the, it was then known as the St Pancras uh, Amateur Club, which went on to become the Cronk, UK Cronk. And uh, his name is Joe Gregory. He trained uh, a, a heavyweight called uh, John McDermott. Yeah, so I, he, I, in fact, when I first moved to Lo North London for South London, he became my coach. He took a liking to me because he thought I was really good. He said, you should turn professional. You're good enough. I said, look, I'm too old to, I was, like, like I said, 30, 30 when my son was born. Um, then I asked him, could I assist you to learn how to be a coach? He said, well, yeah, you can. So I sort of monitored him, watched the way he did things. And, and um, yeah, from then onwards, I, I started, uh, I used to run a security company on, on, as a part-time thing. 
I started to coach my uh, my security uh, uh, staff. I used to take them on the pads. You know, they were all big guys. I used to say, "You have to come do pads, and if you don't come, I'm not going to give you the hours for the for the securities." I used to trade off, and this is how I started. You know, taking these big guys on the, on the pads and uh, training them. And from then onwards, uh, shortly after that, um, I did that for a period of like 12 months. And I thought, you know, I need to get a studio. I need to get a little studio to, to, to do it for myself. And the way, the way God has it, I'm a God-fearing man. The way God has it, um, I managed to get a space. Whilst building that space, I met the person who, like I said, I've given about 100 interviews over the years since I became a coach. And I will always owe him. His name is Derek Chisora because I met him in a petrol station literally about... 10 days after securing my first premises, which I turned into a gym. I um, bumped into him in the petrol station. I was with a colleague of mine who was speaking to him. And uh, it turns out he was a, an amateur boxer, boxing for Finchley ABC. And uh, my friend started talking to him. He said, yeah, I'm a boxer. He'd only had like six or so amateur fights. And my friend said, look, that man over there putting petrol in his car, you need to talk to him. He's, he's a good coach. Although I hadn't coached anyone of any name, it's just the way destiny has it, you know. And um, yeah, he, we spoke. To, I spoke to Derek and gave him my number. And a week after I gave him my number, he called me. He said, "Where is your gym?" I told him he came. Although I hadn't actually built the gym, I was just got the keys and I was just, you know, going to start to build it. He started to come down, and um, he was doing the novice ABAs at the time, and I helped him. Um, he was boxing for Finchley ABC, but he used to come to me privately, and I used to give him uh, give him some sessions. And uh, he won he went and won the ABA novice ABAs. Then year after he went and did the actual ABA senior ABAs, and he, he won that also. And um, yeah, and then he enrolled me within his coaching staff. Um, a chap called John Oliver, Spencer Oliver's uncle, who also trained and involved in training Anthony Joshua. He was Derek Chisora's first, uh, when he turned professional, he was Derek Chisora's official coach, number one. After two fights, John resigned and he handed the, I call it the baton, you know, in relay, you have the baton, he handed the baton over to me. He said, don't drop it. And I didn't drop it for a long, long period. And, and I, thank, I thank John also for giving me that responsibility. Uh, it was a big one, you know. Um, so I went on with Derek to within 10 slash 12 professional fights that won the British title. Again, it was a sweet and sour thing because uh, that victory, because he'd beaten the kid who I used to raise in Brixton ABC, Danny Williams. Derek Chisora won his British title off Danny Williams. And um, although I was very happy, but it was to my junior who was at my club, you know, so it was kind of mixed emotions. Um, yeah, so Derek went on from strength to strength. We went on to win the Commonwealth title, British title, uh, European title, fought for the WBC title. Um, so that's not bad for a, a guy, myself, a coach. It just shows you in life, yeah, uh, if you want something, you know. Um, I wanted it. I didn't know. I didn't know that's what I was meant to be doing, you know. Um, and I found myself loving doing what I do. And like I said, chance meeting by Derek Chisora, who then, when I say, gave birth to me as a coach. Who's to say, had I not met him, that very day, the chance meeting, um, now that I know how lucky I was to have actually met him, because I'll tell you why, looking back, how 
uh, difficult it is to break into the industry and breaking and getting uh, given an ABA champion. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't happen. I was, when I look back, I think, my goodness, how fortunate. But this is why I'm a strong believer in destiny. You know, it was meant to be. I've done good for him. You know, I've done good for him and he's done very, very good. And I, I will always owe, owe him that, the role he played in, in, my, in my life uh, as a coach. And I've gone from strength to strength. I've coached four British champions to date in different, uh, four different weight categories. Um, and I'm very, very happy of where I am in my career at the moment as a coach. Um, I'm still hungry, I'm still determined, I'm still as hardworking as I was when I first started. And my son also being a, a, a prophet, he's chosen to, he could have done anything, my son, he's very academic, George, but he chose to, uh, to do, to, to, I wanted him to do football because um, it was very good football and he opted to be a boxer and obviously he's got my support and I am his coach, and if it's his destiny to become a world champion, then nothing can stop it. And it's my, if it's my destination to train multiple world champions, nothing will also stop. They won't be down to lack of knowledge, because I did all what I did without any experience, really. And now I feel so confident, not arrogant, confident, because when I look back, to achieve all that without having any previous experience, and the experience I've now gotten will serve me really well in the second part of my uh, coaching career. Don, you've just given a fantastic breakdown of kind of your life in uh, 17 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I could probably just end the interview, but I won't be because I've got some questions. But that was a, a fascinating kind of breakdown. I'll come on to Derek properly in a, in a few questions time. But one question I just want to ask you now is you, you spoke about him so highly there. When... You are asked questions about Derek, and obviously, as I say, I'm going to ask about him in a bit. But when you ask questions about him, does he ever frustrate you when people ask ask you about him, ask your opinions on him, or does he kind of just bring back the good memories that you had, and you're just happy to talk about him, given what he's still obviously looking to achieve in the sport? Yeah, listen, I if you listen to my previous interviews with various networks, I've always referred to him as my first son in boxing, and that will always be the case till the day I leave this planet. Right, um, you know, I'm, very, I'm a very grateful person. Like I said to you, it was a chance meeting, yeah? And that kid has gone in the ring and fought on, on his behalf for his family, for me also. He won for him, he won for his family, he won for me. And how can I then sit or at any time and not acknowledge and embrace that? It's, life's not always about negative, you know? Of course there are negatives that, that's come, but I, I re every day I appreciate I appreciate what I'd gotten out of uh, a chance meeting. It was a chance meeting. It wasn't like I'd been this guy who's come through the amateur scene, coaching people, then uh, people noticed that I was a good coach and then awarded me, rewarded me with a, a ABA champion. Yeah, he gave me a chance. He gave me an opportunity. He didn't have to. You know, when his first coach left, uh, John Oliver, Derek could have said, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to get an experienced coach. And also thank Frank Warren because when Frank Warren, when I first met him, I was a nobody in boxing. Who are you? Where did you come from? I just came from nowhere. Suddenly I'm training this ABA champion. They, they, they gave me an opportunity. So, you know, like I said to you, destiny, my friend, destiny. Um, 
it was meant to be. And so I could never really, of course I'm a human being, I go through moments privately when I, I feel uh, a bit hurt of what's happened, disappointed more than hurt, disappointed because I really wanted to be the one or involved in taking Derek Chisora across the line to get the world. I always, I've always stated that he deserves for what he's put in and I know he's good enough to, to lift a version of the, of the world title, but I mean, obviously, it's really, really difficult now because so many people have caught us up. We were so ahead of people, a lot of boxers. Um, for whatever reasons, I'm not going to go, we haven't got on that here, uh, where his career sort of took a, a, a turn for, for the worse in the sense that in his first 10 professional fights, he was ready to fight for the British title. And he fought and he won it against a very credible person like Danny Williams, who'd beaten the great Iron Mike. And, you know, we fought for the European title, beat a guy called Robert Hellenius in Helsinki. We were denied that victory, but we won. Everybody knew we won. Even Robert Hellenius knew we won, won that fight. So that kind of gave us a little setback. Um, and then Mr. Uh, the Gypsy King Tyson Fury came and inflicted the first defeat on us. And from that moment on, onwards, Derek's career kind of took a turn. For the, it's a little bit of a setback. Him being the character he, he is, as we know him today, um, he like, plays the villain, but the crowd have warmed to him now. He's the British darling. You know, he entertains people. He's different. You know, it's a promoter's dream in a way because he sells fights. You know, but really and truly, what I would have liked is for him to have... Uh, won the world title. Vladimir Klitschko pulled out on him before he eventually fought for, for Vitaly Klitschko, the, the older brother. So, you know, again, destinies. If it's meant to be, then it still will be. But it's looking very doubtful at the moment. But if they do these uh, super champions and make the... Before, when they had the... Uh, uh, I don't know how they classified it. You know, Lucas Brown won a world title, but it wasn't the super... He wasn't a the super champion. champion. He was a regular champion. If they could do the same thing again, then Derek Chisora deserved. I would like to see him go and pick up one of those um, regular titles. Um, to, he deserves it for, for the effort, uh, amount of entertainment, the amount of great fights he's given to the British public and, and world boxing. He deserves to, before he retires, to, to, to pick up one of those. And although I'm not involved anymore, I, it was still, I'm still a part of it, you know. Um, like I said, forever I'm indebted in the sense what he achieved and what the name. He, he gave birth to me as a coach. Yeah, I, I helped him, I built him as a fighter. But he, he, he gave, brought light, drew light to me uh, as a coach. And, and I will always, Mr. Chuzura, thank you very much. I'll always thank him. I've, I've, t I've said to him in person and, and publicly, privately I will say, uh, public level authors because it's truth. Quick stop and start there in case um, that timed out there, Don. Um, we might as well just stick with um, Derek there. Um, what's your relationship like with Derek now? Do you still speak to him regularly on the phone? Is he just an occasional catch-up or do you kind of keep away from each other? How would you explain your, your dynamic now? Um, I'm a very honest man. Basically, uh, he left after we lost the first few refugees. No, Fury fight. Yeah, the first loss we had to Fury, he left. And we were apart for two years, I believe. Yeah, and then he came back. Although I was reluctant in taking him back, I, again, looked at him as my son, the prodigal son. I took him back and uh, we went on 
put a few wins together. And then we, people had written him off that he's finished, he's a washed up fighter. He came back again and uh, we, uh, he came back and we regrouped, I retraced. I said, you're not a washed up fighter like everybody seems to say. Uh, they don't know you, I know you very well. So I was able to retrace his roots, his boxing roots, the things that made him successful initially. I knew what those things were. And we just simply went back and, and took him back to basics, you know, and uh, regrouped. He gave an, I think he might have won fight of the year. Because um, I had another fighter on that night in Manchester, uh, 2016, I think it was, um, fighting um, uh, Jose Burton. Frank Bullion, he, he beat Jose Burton to win the British title against, against all the odds. One of my greatest moments in, in the British ring as a coach, um, winning that British title, Frank Bullion against Burton. Derek uh, fought Dylan White the same night. Anthony Joshua fought uh, Eric Molina the same night. And uh, so basically, two of my fighters, it was like one and two at the fight of the year. Okay, so I was really grateful. We won that fight against Dylan White, the first fight, but we were denied. Uh, uh, the judges uh, chose Dylan, but everybody, you know, thought we won. We thought we won, but that gave birth to the second epic fight they had. So after the second fight, uh, Mister, for the for the second fight, Derek wanted to change management. He got David Hay to get involved and initially I was a bit, what are you doing? This guy, we don't, we've had issues with this guy in the past. Um, what are you doing getting him to manage you, you know? Then me not being a selfish person, I sort of had a go at Derek initially. It took me less than three minutes to see an angle why he would want David Hay in, to be involved in his career. So I went back to him, I said, you know what Derek, I said, uh, as mad as he may sound, and appear, uh, I could see an angle there um, on the business uh, angle. Um, I could see why you would want David Hay. People won't expect that. It's quite controversial. People won't expect it. Um, so me not being selfish, I, I allowed him. I said, yeah, it will actually work. And uh, I commissioned it. Um, so we all got together, grouped together. It was fabulous working with David Hay initially because, you know, with the experience that Hay had got, me not being a selfish person, I thought, okay, this guy has won the world title. He's an undisputed cruiserweight champion. He went on to win the, a version of the heavyweight uh, 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 title. I thought maybe the things that, little details that we might be lacking why Derek hasn't won a, a world title, if we can get a bit of uh, experience from Mr. Hay, who have been there with Adam Booth and done it, maybe that was like the missing link, yeah? That was my mindset, you know? Um, so we went into that. But me being the honest man, I am, I'm pretty naive at times, but you know what? I choose to be the same way I am, because, you know, um, I will always come up trumps eventually. So um, we lost the fight to Dylan White. We were winning the fight. We moment of uh, lack of concentration, we let Dylan White in and he threw his money shot, his left hook, and we lost the fight, unfortunately. And um, they were looking for scapegoats. Whenever a fighter loses a fight, um, the trainer gets blamed. I'm no different. 
So he opted to to walk again. And um, I think Mr. Hay was very instrumental in that. The man who had commissioned recommended when they asked me, I said, um, I believe he was very instrumental in, in um, ousting me, getting me, because he's the manager, and the manager has the power. But it's up to the fighter to use their brain and say, no, that's my guy. You should, you should recognize who, who, who's there for you when the chips were down. I'm always there. So uh, they ousted me, fine. And um, that does hurt me. That does hurt me because, you know, I'm human. I've got a, I've got a, a heart, you know, it did hurt me um, because what should happen in that instance is to look at, examine where did we go wrong and regroup and, and Derek, you've left before, you know, and again, the results weren't great when you left. You should have learned from that and to ask the man who's a very solid person, I'm a bit of a romantic as well, I want to see the journey through with him and um, from where I'm sitting now, I'll be quite honest with you, I, I, um, yeah, I'm, when I say hurt, I'm hurt. Um, because that's still my son there. It really is. I'm still emotionally attached to the guy. Yeah, as a person, as a fighter, I know his family. And it, it hurts me when I, I see the people he's with now, Mr. Hay and the other group. They don't actually know the fight. They don't know the person. They don't know him. And it saddens me when I see what I'm seeing, what they're doing. Um, it's, yeah, it's sad. It's sad because that's my son. Always will be. Do you still talk to Derek? Of course I talk to Derek, but it's like a father and son relationship type of thing, you know. Um, yeah, some days I want to pick up the phone and say, yo, son, get your ass back home. And I think, no, why should I do that? Because, you know, uh, you've, you've chosen to, to, to go again. It's not the first time. And how many times must you... Uh, I value myself a lot. You've got to know your self-worth in life, yeah? I value myself a lot in every... It's not just about being a boxing coach. I am more than a boxing coach to Derek Tesoro. You understand, yeah? He's my brother, he's my son, he's my fighter, um, he's a friend. He's a, yeah, he's a lot of things to me. So, you know, um, I played a lot of roles for him because um, I want the best for him. And like I said, I can't be a hypocrite and say he gave birth to me as a coach and I appreciate everything I've gotten from it. Then how can I then want to be a part of to see it not succeed? That, I'm not that type of person. I want to see him succeed. I still want to see him succeed. And it saddens me when I see um, he's not being coached properly. He doesn't actually have a coach. It hurts me. Yeah, it hurts me when I see he hasn't got a coach. Uh, like I said, um, as you can see, uh, it's quite a, a sensitive subject, you know. Um, I would like to see him have a coach, um, a proper coach, a coach who understands him. He's extraordinary, Derek. He's a very complex character, yeah? You know, you have to have a, 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 an experienced coach, a matured coach who can deal with him because he's very difficult. He's a difficult individual, special person, yeah? He's a special person. We've been on some 
incredible journey journeys me and Derek in, in the boxing world you know um, people never ever gave us a chance especially when we fought the great Vitaly Klitschko all the experts said he's going to get knocked out in two rounds they don't know what we know they don't know what I know yeah we're always trying to prove people wrong always trying to prove people underdogs and then it hurts me when he's the hands of the people who don't know how to handle him, how to talk to him, how to deal with him. It hurts me to say it because he's going to be this guy. They're just using this guy and it hurts me. It's a hypothetical situation I'm going to put to you now, Don. You mentioned, you know, at times you feel like calling him up and saying, you know, yeah, son, yeah, come back down here. Um, but obviously in the end you've, you've fought against that. If he was to come back to you and say, Don, I've gone away, it hasn't worked out, I've made a mistake, I'd love to come back and work with you again. I'm sure you've probably thought about that in, in your own mind, whether it would happen or not. If it did, what would you say? That's, that's a conversation between me and him. I can't tell you right now, because, um, like I said, I'm a very sensitive person, and it's deeper than... It's deeper than uh, that meets the eye. I mean, look, I'm giving you an interview, but I have to remember that I'm actually, this is going out, isn't it, this interview? So I, I have to um, check my emotions. Yeah, let's say that's a conversation for another day. Right. No, 100% done, that's obviously fair enough. And um, I just appreciate you obviously speaking to me still. Um, you mentioned Derek's a complex character. We obviously know um, he, he can either be a villain or he can be a hero, depending on which way you look at him. What could you tell us about him that people won't know, though? What do you mean? So is there anything in particular that like Derek used to get up to that kind of sticks out in your mind, whether it be funny or yeah. mental or frustrating? Yeah, it's just a very mischievous um, character. You know, Derek, like I said, is very complex. He, he, Derek doesn't, all the things you see him, all the antics, you know, he, he, he doesn't plan them. He, it's just random, like off the cuff. He's, He's a genius. There's a genius living in there because obviously I'm not painting him out of this kind of guy that walks out of a halo around his head. No. Um, but he's, he's a special individual. I remember one incident. I'll give you an example, right? We've gone to Germany to fight uh, Vitaly Klitschko, right? We're in a Mercedes head office uh, doing a public workout. A uh, place was packed of Germans, yeah? Um, Klitschko's fans, obviously. And um, remember, we're two African boys, yeah, who, when I entered this country in 1974 to watch the Rumble in the Jungle, Derek Chisora, obviously, is like young enough to be my son. Right? It's a massive age gap. And he came to this country with his parents, yeah. Now, who's to say two, two African boys are going to meet in a petrol station? They're going to group together and they're going to go and achieve what they've achieved, yeah? Okay? Two African boys. I'm just painting that picture for you, right? Then we find ourselves in his 16th or 17th professional fight, fighting for the WBC World Heavyweight Championships in Germany against a guy who was brutalizing everybody at the time. Klitsch got to, to that point. He had had 43 fights. 40 of them by the way of KO. Only three people prior to that had gone the distance with Klitschko, Vitaly Klitschko. So 
we are in the Mercedes uh, Centre doing the public workout. And it was our turn to do the workout, we did it. And what, it was question time now. Uh, the reporter uh, gave the microphone to one of the audience, members of the audience, Klitschko's fans. He said, um, yes, Derek, we read in the news that you said you're going to knock Vitaly Klitschko out. You are dreaming. And this genius boy of mine, Derek Chisora, grabbed a microphone, he's standing in the middle of the ring, he said, um, yes, my friend, I might be dreaming, but every single one of us in this room here, there must have been about 1,500 people in that room, every single one of us here uh, are humans. We dream, because without that dream, we are nothing. Do you know, right, that moment, even every time I say I get goosebumps, even when I'm telling you now, this happened in 2013, 12, 13, yeah? You could hear a penny drop yeah, when he gave the answer. Then literally within five seconds of the answer, Derek answering the, the fan, the Klitschko fan, the whole 1,500 people applauded him. Now, can you imagine, you walk, walked into that room, it was quite hostile, the atmosphere, okay, because they're obviously very, they're all pro-Klitschko. Then one of his fans asked you that question, basically to ridicule you. And to be able to, within an instant, come up, even me, who I think I'm a very clever person, I would have been stumped with that question. I would have, uh, 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 uh. he took the question, fired it back with the most logical answer, and the whole, it had the whole 1,500 people in its pocket. Now, that's a sign of genius. Just a couple of fights I want to touch on with um, your time with Derek. Um, on the, the Klitschko fight, looking back at it, what are your thoughts? The Klitschko fight? Yeah. Right, basically, inexperience uh, cost us that fight because we, we wanted to shock the world. Two African boys, we went there. You know, there's a saying in my country, we go, we go where no man dares to go, right? We walk the ground, people refuse to walk. That's an African mentality. Yeah, and I reminded him, I'm the elder, it's my duty to remind the young ones, this is our culture, this is our mentality. So when people are telling us two rounds, yes, it can happen, but that's what they're thinking. We, we've got our, our own agenda, you know? So we went to Germany to shock the world. We went to Germany, does this guy breathe oxygen? Does he bleed red blood? The answer is yes, we can beat this guy. That's basically our mentality, yeah? So and we went there to get victory. We were disappointed, we, we lost. We went the distance, we didn't go just to go the distance, we went there to win, yeah? Because this guy's a human being and he breathes oxygen. We went there to win. Um, we lost on points and when you look back at it on the boxing thing, uh, basically experience beat us. We're supposed to cut the ring off, we didn't. We're supposed to um, press the fight uh, from round one, we didn't. These are all, experiences that we'd gotten from it. Um, so it wasn't, yeah, terribly disappointed because, you know, uh, again, if it was our destiny, there is destiny to have won the world. So can you imagine the BC belt back then, you know, against a guy who hadn't been, he, again, he retired. Uh, he didn't retire on beating because the great Lennox Lewis uh, beat him. Um, but at that point, Klitschko had gone something like 10, it was on a 10-year run of unbeating. And I think, 
He may have had one more fight after that, fight of no significance, and then he retired. He was actually running for parliament when, when Derek fought him for the, for the Ukrainian um, parliament. So, um, no, listen, some great, great, great memory. That's why, for me, uh, and Derek, that romantic thing, that this guy started with me, you know, he was my first, my first born, my first son. It means a lot to me. I know always will. Whether, whether he, he, me and him ever work together again or we don't, in history, in my history, it will always, and I will never conduct an interview without Derek's name being mentioned. How about that? I will never do an interview, as in, when I say I'll never, whenever you guys ask me, I think his name will always come up. And that's basically says it all. Don, just another fight to touch on, the most obvious one, which I'm sure you've spoken about many and many a time as well, uh, the David Hay one. We've spoken about kind of the relationship between David and Derek recently. Going back to that, just there was a whole host of things um, built around it. Obviously, we know the incident you and David had, uh, the instant David and Derek had with the glass, uh, just kind of what's your yeah. reflections on that entire time back then? Yeah, I mean, it's bizarre, it's outrageous. I mean, listen, um, it's, David knows himself, I don't like the guy. I don't like what he stands for. I admire what he achieved in the ring. I admire what him and Adam Booth uh, did achieve. In fact, when I first came into the irony of it is when I first came into boxing, I did like a, when you go into any business, you do like market research. My case study was based on David Hay as a fighter and Adam Booth as a coach. I've even told Adam this on, on numerous occasions. I, although I'm older than, than Adam, but I'm not ashamed to say I based my case study on him as a coach how he conduct, conducts himself, how to be. And I said to Derek, you see those two characters, they stood up for me when I was doing my research, of how they conducted themselves, how they appeared tight, and how they're immaculate in every which way they appeared, and they achieved a lot, yeah? So it, it hurt me that then the incident, because I had, had a lot of respect for, for David Hay as a fighter, yeah? Um, you know, then that incident happened where he, he came into the post-fight press conference, the Klitschko after the Vitale fight, to ridicule Derek, who'd just done a hard 12 rounds with this man, right? where he had failed miserably against the younger brother, who bailed out on fighting Derek. He bailed out. We were in, in Mannheim in Germany to fight uh, Vladimir Klitsch a, a few years prior to fighting Vitaly. A lot's not made of that. When Vladimir Klitschko pulled out from, from three days from fighting Derek, the stadium was sold out. He called in with the, his t trainer, the great late Emmanuel Stewart, uh, cited that they pulled a, stomach, a, t a tear in the stomach, abdominal tear in a hotel room, which um, we found it hard to believe back then and I still find it hard to believe now because it never happened. They, they saw that we, we were too hungry and they, pulled, they bought admission three days prior to the fight. Yeah? So that's the one David Hay fought. He, then after that, he hijacked that fight and, fought, and, and fell miserably. Miserably. Yeah? So when now Derek went and fought the Vitaly, the, the, the stronger one, and he did well. We didn't win, but he did very well. And David came in uninvitedly to the room and... Uh, he actually came there to 
try and poach a fight with Vitaly, I believe. Then it went wrong, and Derek being Derek um, got off the off the bench, uh, the front, stage. whatever, the stage to go and confront David, which he shouldn't have. And um, then what happened happened. Uh, David decided to strike Derek, and uh, I jumped in to say, "What are you doing?" And then, to my surprise, he walloped me, split my mouth, and uh, I'm still. I had, when I say surgery, my teeth, I ha I've actually developed a less because I had uh, reconstruction whatnot. He claimed that he broke my jaw because that makes him feel good. No, he did not break my jaw, yeah? And he took a good shot at me and I wasn't fighting him. He hit an older man than him. I wasn't actually fighting him because if he wants to fight me any day of the week, I've always said this, I'll fight him. He cannot beat me in a fight. It's a fight. He cannot beat me in a fight, you know? Um, so he has never privately or publicly apologized for that incident to me. And I, I paid a fine. I got fined by the I got jailed. Me and Derek got locked up in Germany for like a day. And Frank Warren bailed us out. Francis Warren and Frank, and Frank Warren bailed us out. Francis was actually on that tour with us. He came and bailed us out. And uh, up to today, Mr. Hay has never, he hasn't got it in him to apologize to me or to um, to publicly or privately, but life will pay him back. With the fight itself, when it went ahead, um, did you feel like there was just a lot of raw emotion there which kind of overtook Derek on the night? No, no. Uh, if you've, you're one, you want to win every fight you go into, that fight, we really wanted to win that fight for a lot of reasons. and. Again, I'm not here to throw my guy under the bus. If you go and watch the fight, yeah, there was a lot of inconsistencies, things that happened that aids you to lose the fight. There it was under instructions to not, not to open up prematurely because I knew David, we knew David was very smart, especially with Adam Booth, coaches in whom I respect a lot and still do. You know, um, he's very, very intelligent. His ring IQ is very, very good. He's an athlete also, David Hay. So we knew we had to stay compact. Don't have a fight with him earlier on in, in the fight. Stay compact, hold your shape, and make him wear him. He'll be throwing power shots. We knew, we anticipated that. And as soon as the bell rang, he came up throwing power shots. We knew that too. He knew he had to blast Derek out of there to have any chance of winning. And uh, we thought if we weather the storm for five rounds, then we'll start taking him apart. Yeah, and um, the, the game plan was working nicely. And Derek decided, like he does, he's going to open up. Told him not to open up prematurely. He started to open up. And just, again, lack of concentration. And uh, we let him in and uh, bingo, um, we got knocked out. And I believe... Uh, do you think that Derek Chisora will go and ask David Head to manage him had Derek Chisora beaten David Head? The answer is capital no, right? There's something that happens to a fighter when the other fighter beats them in the fashion that they got beat. You become in awe. I'm not in awe of David Hay, but I believe my, my son is in awe of David Hay. That's what you're seeing presently. I could stick on this topic for a long time, but obviously we'll move on, uh, Don. I'll 
want to go back to kind of your journey over to England and you mentioned obviously at the time when you was growing up there was a war going on back in your home country um do you remember anything of kind of your childhood your early childhood and what it was like living through that god um um listen you're no disrespect to you're a young man uh a war is a war you say terrible horrible things i've never actually seen like a psychologist i probably some point in my life need to go and say a psychologist about it because i saw some horrible things and a lot of it shaped me into who i am today but in some cases you know people uh, affect you in a in a in a, in a um, negative way uh, but it impacted me in a, a positive i'll use that that's partly what drives me the experience that I had from the age of six to the age of nine, ten, um, what I saw will last me a, a lifetime. And yeah, it obviously shapes your life, you know, shapes your mind. Like I said, in sometimes as human beings, you know, um, some of us it affects us in our wrong way. Um, you hear people committing all kind of crimes, and then a psychologist would diagnose saints from their childhood. Yeah, from what I based on what I saw, I should be a serial killer. I should be causing all kind of havoc around the. But I've done this. Like I said, it's had a. Uh, uh, I've used it in a positive way, the things things that I experienced and so. Don, just picking that back up again there, because I don't want um, camera to time out. Um, moving forward to kind of your your earlier life, then, and when you came over to England, how did you find kind of adjusting to society, being from, you know, another country coming over? How did you find that? Yeah, it was um, quite different, you know, um, quite, when I say to romantic, in the sense that the British colonised Nigeria. So Nigeria is, uh, has three languages that make up Nigeria, three uh, 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 languages, Hausa, Yoruba and Igbo. I'm from the East, I'm an Igbo man. We speak Igbo, the language, yeah? So being as three, they're totally the uh, language that we don't understand one another. So we speak English. English is the language we use to communi communicate amongst each other. So uh, uh, English, uh, yeah, my English has always been very, very good in the sense that it's, it's a language we communicate uh, with us. We still we speak our native language, yes we do, when you're speaking from the person from your tribe, you, you do. But when you're speaking from somebody from Nigeria, but from a different tribe, you speak you speak in English. Um, like I said, in, the English colonized our country, so we always spoke relatively good English. Very educated Nigerians in general. Um, so when I came over here, it was, uh, uh, it was uh, an easy adjustment in terms of the language because I could already write and speak English very well. Write it more than I could speak it. Over the years of living here, obviously, uh, your tone changes and your... And so, yeah, they, they are, uh, it was very, very romantic in the sense that all the postcards, all the books and films we used to see about England, I was able to, like, go, you know, go. My father used to make a point of every Sunday, the whole family dress up, and we go to, after church, we'll go and have something to eat, then we'll go to, like, uh, uh, do a tour of London, like, drive past Buckingham Palace, has a parliament. So all these things you used to see on postcards, you know, and the soldiers, the Queen's Army, you know, it's like, you can see them, you can't touch them, but you can, it's like, wow, you know. 
So that's like really, really fond uh, memories of coming to England. And uh, it was freezing, you know, <laughs> back because I came into the country in, in October. And uh, my goodness, it used to be like really foggy, really icy. But things have changed a lot over the years and obviously global warming and that. But um, yeah, you know, it was I remember it very well. I remember when my mum came to the airport to, to with my father to get me. They brought um, what are they called? These coats that with the you know like the car key coats with the the, the, fur, the fur around the, the yeah they brought. One. I was like wow. I used to see these on uh, on the telly you know, and now I've got one and I put it on me and it's like oh my god, it's brilliant. Yeah. Don, you mentioned with your parents um, when you were studying, they wanted to have a saw kind of a career for you in whether it being doctor or um, law. Did you feel a pressure to to go down that route? And if so, how was kind of the conversation with your parents to tell them that you didn't quite see yourself going down one of those two paths with your life? I wouldn't dare tell them that. I couldn't see myself <laughs> to go on with it. No, I'm very academic, you know. Um, like I said, my my dad was the type of dad that when... Remember, I'm the firstborn, yeah? So when we finish uh, school, he would come back from his work. He worked in the city, city of London. And remember, he's a banker, yeah? So he had a, in our dining room, we had a, a blackboard that you have at school. Today, you guys have computers. <laughs> we had a blackboard with a chalk and a duster. And we'd finish our evening meal. Now, I'm the firstborn. I have to go first. I'll get my exercise book, exercise book being the book whether it's for maths or English. He was a mathematician, my father. So he said, right, he'll flick through. What did you do today? I'll show him the maths we did on that particular day. He'll think, okay, you got that sum right. Okay, can you get up on the blackboard and demonstrate to me how you got the answer? I swear to God, you have to get up there and, yeah, demonstrate how you got that sum. Because it's got a tick on The teacher has ticked it, so it means you got it right. You've now got to demonstrate to my father the same sum that you got right like a few hours ago. You have to break it down. And if you dare, there's a way of him making sure that you've learned it, that you haven't copied it off your classmate. Yeah? So this is, yeah, this is that. And then in English, he would do all kind of, he was like a school, it's like you leave school uh, uh, during the day and in the evening time, your father had the time. That's how dedicated this man was to put into his family to make sure that you really have to learn. You really have to learn. There's no substitutes. You have to learn. So um, it was very thorough. And that was my up upgrowing, upbringing. And then, uh, yes, they, they were priming their children to become doctors and lawyers. We have uh, a doctor in my family. We have a lawyer in my family. Um, so they achieved it through my other siblings. I'm the eldest who's supposed to have gone and done that. Um, there's a few reasons I opted not to. I didn't tell them no, because you don't tell your parents no. I never at any point said, no, I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. It's just uh, circumstances the way they moved back to Africa. Then I had, I was doing at college. Then from there, I became more vague and kind of did what I wanted to do in terms of the, where I wanted to take my career. They was against it because they always wanted me to come back to complete my universities back home. And I, that never happened um, for various reasons. But you know what? Destiny, um, that's the way mine was carved out. And do I regret anything? No, I do not. I regret the time that I didn't spend with my parents because I lived here on my own when they went back to Nigeria. So I do regret, if I have any regrets, the time, long stretches of time that I didn't spend with them because they're no longer w with us. They, they left 
the planet. They, they've gone to a better place. Um, so that's my only regret of the time I spent away from them. There's two things I want to pick up on there. First one being, um, when you, if you got an answer wrong with the, with the chalkboard, uh, what was the punishment? Right, today will be classified as a child abuse, <laughs> right? But they only wanted the best for me and it hasn't, hasn't turned that bad. And then the second thing being, um, when obviously your parents went back uh, home, was it difficult to kind of maintain the relationship being so far apart? No. No, no. It's, um, I've always had a very good relationship with my, my family. Moving forwards, Dan, um, just want to kind of get your thoughts on the boxing world currently. When you consider when you first came into it and how it's changed now, what's been the thing in particular that surprised you? What, what would you like to see be improved on in the future? In terms of the boxing industry? The boxing industry, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, how can I put it? Obviously, we're going through a pandemic at the moment. Yeah, taking into consideration that. Um, when things get back to normality, please God, um, just small hall shows being uh, where fighters in the small hall shows, something has to happen where they should be put on a, a, a guaranteed purse, um, then tickets bolted on top of it. Um, to give them a chance to, to, if you say you're a professional boxer, you know, I would say everybody that calls themselves a professional boxer within the whole boxing fraternity industry, I would say in terms of uh, percentage, you're probably looking at maybe worldwide, maybe 5%, I'm probably being generous, that actually earn a living only from boxing. Yeah, if we're being generous and say 5%, there's another 95% who call themselves professional boxers, but they have full-time jobs, so they're not professional boxers. So what I would like to see eventually is something, I don't know how we're going to arrive at this, but something has to give where uh, fighters who, who turn professional, um, they're not your ABA winners, they're not Olympians. Yeah, I would like to do, not me, when I say collectively we, in the boxing world, do formulate something, whether it's a percentage of the earn, big earners putting back half a percent into the kitty to perhaps, so it filters down. Yeah, I, that's what really I would like to, to and now it's not talk is cheap, I'd like to uh, instrumentally trying to uh, 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 get something to the board. The board are very reasonable, one of the best we have in the world, the British Boxing Board of Control. Try and do something where we can get a legislation across to to to, to so many young men turning professionals and then within uh, 12 to 18 months of that happening, they're retiring because they realize you can't make a living out of it. So I'd like that to change. It's no secret, obviously, we're in this pandemic and a lot of people around the world are struggling, but in boxing terms, and you mentioned the small hall circuit, are you worried at all with kind of the future of the, the small hall circuit, and especially around these current times? You know, I'll give you a perfect example. I spoke to Harry Woods, who was in the Ultimate Boxer Tournament uh, this past weekend, and he said that himself, 
he, did, he didn't know when he'd next get back out. He's been fighting on small hall shows, so this opportunity came up at late notice. I think he had seven days' notice, and he had to take it because he didn't know when he'd next get a chance to fight. Are you concerned yourself for kind of the future of certain of the small hall shows? Most definitely, most definitely, because like we're trained well, I just said, yeah. You know, it's, uh, I, I mean, look, we're going through a very, very uh, world crisis with the pandemic, so this is probably not, not the best time to, that's, uh, to, for, for anything to happen because it's affected all, all sectors. Every profession in the world has been affected. Every, every professional in their sector has been affected. So, but like I said, when things get back to some kind of normality, we should build an infrastructure to, uh, so that people can actually say, yes, I'm, you know, a, a pro, you're a professional at what you do and you, 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 you get, you get paid for, it. you can make a living from it. Moving forwards once again, again, Don, you mentioned your son George, he's taken up professional boxing. Um, what makes you believe or what kind of makes you look at your working relationship with your son and believe that you can both succeed? We've seen TFM Lopez and his father go on to achieve great things recently. Vasil Lomachenko with his, Floyd Mayweather with his, Enzo, um, Enzo and Joe, yeah. yeah. Um, there are, the list goes on, but what makes you believe obviously your, yourself and your son can go on to not necessarily achieve the same things, but go on to have a great career together. The same on the same basis of the previous names we just mentioned. Uh, you have to have, first and foremost, you have to have that belief, and, and not just having the belief is not enough. You've got to do something about that belief. You know, um, you got to work. Yeah, you got to work. And uh, I'm a very confident person. My son is very confident. It's his chosen profession. Like I said, he could have, uh, uh, could have done anything academically because he's very academic, George. Um, he opted to um, say uh, when he'd done on the guarantees that he did his studies, he did. And then he said, Dad, I want to I do this. I said, um, and he's my only son, you know, as in I don't have any other children. So it, it took a lot of convincing. Yeah, I wanted him to be a footballer um, and play to, for Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> He's an Arsenal supporter. He'll kill me for saying this. Um, so no, uh, he wanted to be a, and I'm I'm supporting him in every which way. And um, he's he's doing good, George. He, he if it's his destiny to 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 do it to get to where we believe he can get to, and then who am I to say um, he he can't get there? What's it like watching your son fight when he's in the ring? I know you've obviously had a lot going on in your life. Um, which we don't need to go back over. But when you're in there and you're watching your son in the ring, what's he like seeing him take a punch, seeing him maybe back up against the ropes from a father's perspective? The, the problem is he doesn't take a punch. That's gospel truth. Yeah, he doesn't take a punch. Yeah, I, I, All my fighters are, are my sons, all of them. All my fighters, I love them. They're like, down. literally, that's how I treat them, like my, my son. John, George is obviously my biolo biological son. Um, so there is that added thing, feeling, I suppose. Um, but because I've been schooling him from the age of, he started paying attention or coming to the gyms to watch me and the boys train up from the age of five, six. So he's been around, he's grown up around. And from the age of 10 is when my brother was the first one to say, you know, I took him on the pastor there and he's, you know, I said, no, 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 done, <laughs> done. That's when it's that. And then and obviously his mother got him, no, no, I don't want him anywhere near boxing. And da, 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 da. Anyway, he got to the age of 16. He showed more interest. 
and uh, and I think at the age of uh, 18, he sparred Derek, and I never saw him again for in the gym for another three months. He'd done a runner. I thought, there you go, champ. You want to be a boxer, yeah? Derek brutalized him, yeah, in to the body, yeah. George, no, no, George is slick. He can't. It's hard to hit his face. Yeah, but he had a young boy's body, so Derek absolutely brutalized him. And I didn't see him for a good three months, you know. And Derek, being off his mischievous, he was like laughing. Because Derek would text the make out of him, you know. And um, <laughs> we didn't see him for another three months or so. And then he came back and he carried on coming back. And, yeah, he's with anybody now. He holds his own with anybody. He's... Matured, listen, he's 28 years old. He's a little bit behind, actually, in terms of uh, what, where he should be in his boxing career. Uh, he had um, the studies, the certain agreements I had with him, the same treatment my parents gave to me. Um, he had to achieve a certain level of his education before. So he, he lost three years of his uh, boxing through that, yeah, studying. And then after that, he said, right, Dad, I've done what you asked me to do. I'm, I want to do it full time now, and that was it. And then we got him his pro license, and uh, he's had three fights. He's unbeaten, and uh, he we expecting provided all goes well with the the current climate we're under, the pandemic thing. Next year we're going to fast track me and the promoter and the manager. We're going to fast track him a bit because he's going to he's presently in camp. He's done two camps with Tyson Fury now. He did the Vegas camp for the first Wilder fight, um, and he, he sorry, my apologies for the second Wilder fight, and he's now doing the camp in Manchester with um, Tyson. So you don't get called back twice if you haven't got something about you. Um, so I'm really, really happy. Um, he's learning, um, and AJ is, is like his brother. Anthony Joshua is like his brother. And uh, he, he speaks to AJ a lot. And, you know, listen, like I said, if it's his destiny to do something in boxing, then he will. He's got all the support, the experience that I've gotten as a coach, uh, the connections and everything. I can open the doors for him, but he has to walk through those doors. Don, just a final man I want to touch on before I leave you now to go and get some sleep is um, Frank Buglioni. We haven't spoke about Frank. You mentioned, obviously, that, that great night in Manchester when you picked up that British title. What was Frank like as a character, though? You know, we didn't really, well, I didn't certainly get to see much of him during my time working in boxing so far. And since then, he's kind of stayed away from the limelight. What was Frank like? Wow. Yeah, I, I thought, wow. I talked about sons. Again, like, they're all my sons. He's my my favorite son, yeah, in boxing, right? Uh, we were only together for two and a half years, and my goodness, what a, a two and a half years experience, uh, beautiful experience. Um, yeah, he's a special human being, special boxer, special friend, lifetime friend he has become with the family, he's got great family, and uh, we achieved a lot in, in such a short space of time. He wishes he started his career with me, professional boxing career, and I wish he started his professional boxing career with me. Um, no, again, destiny. I keep mentioning destiny is very consistent in my um, in my um, speech or my interview. Um, yeah, destiny. We were meant to meet when we meet, met. We achieved what we achieved. It ended when it was supposed to end. He's 
a beautiful person, beautiful human being, and he's got his faculties intact. He's very successful. You know, guys, people who go on to become these boxing champions and that, there's more to them. Whatever they put their hands on, whether it's to do boxing or not to do, they will be successful. And he's a prime example of, of that. Um, from Bullion. They run a very successful family business, him and his father, Mr. Bullioni Sr., the governor, I call him. Um, they run a very successful family business and they're doing very, very, very well with it. And he has no intentions of coming back to boxing. Uh, he's done it. He's done it from the age of nine. Yeah, he's now like 30 years old, you know, he's done it all his life. So he's achieved a lot and he's forever proud of what he achieved. I'm for, definitely forever proud of what he achieved um, generally and what he has achieved whilst working with me. Just a couple of things with Frank, I just want to quickly ask you on. Um, there was two fights that were spoken about whilst Frank was with you, one being Anthony Yard, which never came off, and then the other we saw Sergei Kovalev being mentioned. Looking back, why did neither of those fights take place? Well, I'm not a promoter. That's a, pro that's a question that you put to a promoter. Um, we, we fight whoever is put in front of us at the time. I remember our stance, our stance we took was that Yard was not mandatory for our British title. We had other plans. A champion, when you've got the belts, you've got, you've got plans. Like Anthony, where he is at the moment with Tunde, who's a great friend of mine, um, he has plans of what he wants to do with Anthony. So you can't suddenly, you got these plans and then suddenly divert by doing something that's not a part of your plan. Yard was not a part of our plan back then. Had he been mandatory for our belt, the British title we held at the time, then it was, uh, you see, if I would dropped it or fought him. It was nowhere the mandatory. The board commissioned, sanctioned to, for him to fight an eliminator against Jose Burton, who Frank had been. Then the winner would, would go and challenge uh, Frank for the title, and they declined that opportunity. So what, what are we supposed to do about it? So fights don't just happen uh, like that. There, there are, there's a procedure for, 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 for fights. There's a plan. Everybody has their plan. At the time, he wasn't part of our plan. And you don't go and fight someone as dangerous, as because I rate him highly as a fighter. You don't suddenly go and we're not macho. We're not in the macho business, you know. So, um, no, that fight didn't happen for that reason. Um, so, I <coughs> Sorry, Don. Um, Sergei Kovalev, why did that one not kind of build more momentum when we was hearing rumours about that one. About Frank fighting, Sir Frank fighting Sergei Kovalev. Um, that's news to me. I know there was an approach made by Andre Ward for Frank to fight on Andre Ward. I know of that one. I didn't know about the Kovalev one. Again, we would have weighed it up if it, the team would have weighed it up and if you felt like we were in a position to fight to win, fight to win, we would have taken like Tunde and uh, Yard for Kovalev and the Put, the young man again came from nothing, yeah. His journey to the top, and he came inches for from pulling it off, yeah. And again, destiny. Um, if it's his destiny to go on to lift a, a, a version of of the light heavyweight world title, then he and he will. And Tunde is like myself, very determined, you know. Very very again came from humble beginnings and. Uh, you know, nobody gave him a chance and took, again, Anthony, his, his uh, route to where 
remarkable what Tunde's done with, with him. Speaking about um, Anthony, obviously his link there with Frank, there's a lot of talk about a potential Anthony Arden, Joshua Bawatsi fight taking mm -hmm. place, hopefully sometime next year. Mm -hmm. That fight goes ahead, Don. What are your thoughts on it? Just how big of a fight do you think it is without a world title or with a world title? With that, with that kind of fight, it's almost like that reminiscent of Derek Chisora and Dylan White. There was never any world title on, on stake, but you saw how big those fights can be. That's the sort of, in, in comparison, that's what you're looking at. If Yard and uh, Buasi got it together, you don't need no world titles. Uh, it's a, a domestic British fight, and it'll be a huge fight. Done. I will leave it there now, and I will leave you to get some rest. Um, if you had to take a guess, how long do you think we've spent together? Uh, 60 minutes. It's around the 60, 60 minute, 70 minute mark. Um, certainly probably longer than what you thought you'd be giving up tonight, but I appreciate it immensely. Um, Don, I don't really know what to say to you. I'm lost for words, just how brilliant you was to speak to today and to give me more of an insight into yourself and your entire life up until this point. I've said to you, we'll keep in touch. We'll do plenty more interviews and work together moving forwards. Thank you for your time and thank you for speaking to Boxing Social. In my, in my pleasure. Can I quickly add that I've been interviewed by God, world press, local press. Uh, you, I only met you yesterday, right? You know, remarkable young. I like to see when young people, you are not phased. You're very precise with your, you haven't got nothing written down. You off the cuff, what they call a natural in the business and uh, keep it up. What? <laughs>